As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. As we get closer to racing this season, you'll need to start thinking about which of your parts could use a little tune-up or perhaps a replacement. Keep BTE in mind. That's Bill Taylor Enterprises. For all your high-performance transmission needs, torque converters, parts, complete transmissions, BTE does it all. Check them out at BTE Racing or find them on Facebook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss the strip teaser and the Saturday Night Hooker. That'll become a little bit more relevant later How appropriate. in the show. <laughs> We're recording this intro post-show, so we, we've already recorded this mess that you're about to get into. Um, so let us preface a little bit what's coming. Jed, first and foremost, how are you? Uh, Luke, really well. Thank you for asking. Um, just you know, looking forward to this show. Uh, the, the topic was brought up a few days ago, and um, Mark and I both fell in love with it. I, I'm not sure that, that you were as in love with it, but uh, I feel like you got there in a hurry. So I'm really <laughs> excited about what the listener is going, going to hear here in an hour. So. Um, let's preface this by saying it is early February. There's not a lot to talk about in the sportsman drag racing community. I feel like we had a fun conversation to start things off a little bit more in depth on the, the business side of racing. It's rooted around one simple question. It's in this day and age as purses soar uh, and you see you know, a select few competitors have uh, a tremendous amount of success. The question is, is anyone really 
making money racing? Like, is anyone racing for a living? And, and then a little bit broader within the industry, where does the money go? So we discussed that, you know, in a relatively serious manner for, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes. And then this thing gets completely off the rails. So brace yourself. Um, it's going to, can I say it's going to be fun? It was fun for us. Um, I, I we, loved it. We might not ever get to do this again, um, but it was fun. And, and by this, I mean host a podcast, not have a segment like that. I mean, like that. This is what episode two thirteen. There might not be a two fourteen, but um, it was a blast. We really hammered it home there at the end. It was oh shit. <laughs> yeah, um, stay tuned. Here's PJ. Jed, fun episode on tap today, but I think the only place to start is not a fun topic at all. No, Luke, we, we definitely do not enjoy delivering news like this or discussing news like this, and we won't spend much time on it, but we definitely want to send our thoughts and prayers to the, to the Stone family. Daniel Stone, um, a track employee at Bradenton Motorsports Park, uh, has gone uh, to be with our Lord and Savior, unfortunately, after an on-track incident, um, his friends and family knew him as Chaps, and obviously, from what I've seen online, Luke, just a, a guy that people loved a lot, really enjoyed being around him, working with him, uh, just talking to him, just a guy that really loved what he did at the track, and very unfortunate incident uh, Saturday evening at Bradenton Motorsports Park, you know, took his life, and you know, we, we definitely want to make sure that um, his friends and family know that um, he's going to be missed. And we're definitely um, praying for everybody that is affected by this loss. Yeah, tragic incident that uh, we don't have all of the details, but it sounds fairly bizarre. But to your point, Jed, uh, for those of you that have raced at Bradenton, I mean, uh, in any recent years, um, the, if you pull up the picture of Daniel Chaps Stone, like it's a, it's a very familiar face. Uh, it was uh, an icon, for, for lack of a better word, at that facility, you know, a fixture. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you hate to see a, uh, a fatality, a tragic accident anywhere within our sport. Um, and, and it always uh, hits home when something like this happens. It, I guess it, it makes us all realize, A, how precious life is, and B, um, how, you know, dangerous what this sport that we love can be at times and and it can rear up in an instant but uh yeah i guess to to reiterate your point jed uh thoughts and prayers with um mr stone's family all right luke um definitely hate to to have to discuss those things but let's let's move forward with um one of our main topics we're going to end the show and, and i don't even know how it's going to end but it's going to be a lot of fun but Let's discuss uh, one of our topics for this show, and that's, I guess, sportsman racing or, or bracket racing for a living. Yeah, I touched on this topic briefly uh, a few months back, and let's be honest, Jed, it's it's the off season, right? So we're we're looking for stuff to talk about. I think this deserves a little bit deeper dive, uh, particularly right now, because we would all agree at the big dollar bracket racing level the stakes are higher than they have ever been, right? There's more money to be won, 
but there is also, you know, that that's a trickle down effect. There's more money to be spent, whether that is on entry fees, buybacks, travel, uh, upkeep, maintenance, the cost of a, you know, quote unquote competitive vehicle. I think it's safe to say is is higher than it's ever been, or certainly the opportunity to make that higher than it's ever been is there. And the question that just keeps ringing in my mind, uh, I had a, a racer, longtime friend, um, that I don't see that often, asked me at the Great American Million just point blank like look my buddy and i were having a debate is there anybody out here actually making money like driving a race car making money and i and i think we could even expand that conversation a little bit jed to this kind of industry that we've developed around sportsman drag racing and specifically big dollar bracket racing like there's a lot of money floating around is anybody really making it you know like making it making a, a dent so to speak so with that in mind like what's the jumping off point where do you want to start well you know we definitely i, I get asked this all the time you know I, i've gotten asked a million times can you make a living could you quit work and make a living announcing or could you quit work and make a living doing both racing announcing i always tell them the same thing you darn right i could i could quit work and make a living announcing and racing it just wouldn't be a very good living so you know making a living is one thing but making money is another and i guess luke we need to qualify what people consider making money i mean you know a lot of racers a lot of racers have a hundred thousand plus invested in their racing operation so you know yearly expenses versus what you won what you won being the higher number would tend to say, yeah, I'm making money, but that's not necessarily the case. So I guess qualify what you would consider making money. Yeah. And I think that that is a, 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 an objective, no, a subjective uh, thought process. Like everyone's perception of that is different. Like I'll just take a, a personal example, right? The game, I don't. The game hasn't necessarily changed. The stakes of the of the game have changed pretty significantly since I, you know, quote unquote, raced for a living. And I essentially like I paid my bills through racing more or less uh, for a decade. Now I had some alternative sources of income, so it wasn't just uh, winnings, you know. But for the for a while there, it was mostly race winnings. But keep in mind, at that time, like I'll just give you the numbers. I was uh, I was winning somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, like kind of on average. I was spending every bit of sixty sixty five to do it on average, so I was making thirty five grand a year. And as a single guy living in Alabama, where the cost of living is pretty cheap, like I was getting by. I wouldn't say I was getting ahead, but I was doing what I loved and racing for a living, and that was legitimate. Now, if you had, if you could. Um, Luke, I, let me let me stop you right there, real quick, because the scenario you laid out, you didn't discuss the help you were getting. I mean, you you know, if you broke a a converter or a certain kind of part or something, you you probably was a phone call away from getting some help on that. So you you wasn't even doing that at just a, an an average level like most people would. Correct. Correct. I mean, I was paying all my own entry fees, buybacks, but on the product end, yeah, like it's not like everything for my cars was free, but I would say that I was 
I was probably on average spending 50 cents on the dollar of what it would cost if you just had to pay list price for everything. Yeah. So if you if you factor that in, if you had to pay list price for everything, my thirty thirty five thousand dollar profit a year was probably down to ten. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and keep in mind, like I I have zero regrets, right? Like I live that life. I love that life. But I was just supporting myself, and I was particularly at times very much scratching by. Like I can I can tell some pretty animated stories about rushing to downtown to pay an electric bill you know like an hour before they shut my lights off and the electric bill was like 58 dollars. you know what i mean like it wasn't like the most comfortable living but i loved it but if you fast forward today like with the family there's no way that i could justify doing that but it served me great in the time but again like the stakes of everything get magnified so if you took the same just using me as an example business model and fast forward it now you know a decade plus, a decade and a half since I did it, if you won at the same level, spent at the same level, like I feel like everything's multiplied, like maybe that's doubled today. Like maybe to have the success that I did then, maybe you win 200 grand now and maybe it's sustainable. But I just, I guess the question like, is there anybody making money at this? If you take it in a small sample size, like Hunter Patton in 2020, he made he made money. He made good money. Like he made a living driving a race car, right? And you could you could and it's not just Hunter. I mean, you could single out the the normal names like Nick Hastings won a lot of money last year. Uh, Jeff Sarah, Steve Cisco, right? On down the basically take the finalists from every quote unquote million. They made money in 2020. If you expand that, I guess the question is how sustainable is that? right? Like it's one thing to do it for a year. Could you do it at that level over the course of five years, over the course of 10 years? That I think is a little bit more questionable just because the costs are always there and the it's, it's just difficult to consistently win at that level in this day and age when there's so much parity and there's so many good racers. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, one of the one of the things I think happens when you do quote unquote make money or, or have that big hit, I think it, it makes you do some things you wouldn't have normally done. Maybe buy some parts that you wouldn't normally buy or uh, stretch on out and go to some more races that you wouldn't go to. So eventually I, I think that success on the track only just leads to more expense and the chase to to do that again, whatever you did that was special, whether it was a season or one event. And in the long run, I'm not sure you can make money on the racetrack. Now, you've proven it, and many others have proven it. And, and just like I saw recently on Facebook, Hunter's doing some wiring and some projects for racers. You can make money in the racing industry. Um, just on your own and you know working in the garage you used to wire and plumb race cars and all that type stuff so I think you can turn racing into a money-making business but I'm not sure how much you can make on the racetrack no I think that's a really good point we actually have a, a course Jed on, on this is bracketracing.com dedicated to this I called it uh, make your racing pay for itself and it's the ideas of trimming expenses and trying to to uh, multiply wind lights that's kind of the, the the introduction but really what the course is about is parlaying on track success to build a business around it 
right? Uh, whether it's something like this is bracketracing.com or selling parts or using some of that notoriety, some of that recognition, some of the trust that you build with your competitors, perhaps even, and, and parlaying that into something else. Like, I do agree there. I would push back a little bit. I don't know. Again, it, like we said in the opening, it, it's it's about more than you know quote unquote making a living it's, it's kind of a question as to how you want to live i do think that in this day and age a truly gifted racer could come out ahead more often than not like there's going to be lean times um but i think the key to sustainability kind of back to your point jed is the discipline to realize like hey i just banked this 50 grand or whatever it, the key to the sustainability is to realize okay like i'm the odds are I'm not going to hit like that again. Like I don't need to go spend 40 of this this week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and to just make that stretch out, it you, you hit a race. It doesn't mean that you need to upgrade equipment. It's not the time. Like I don't have to go buy this bigger motor or new motor home or whatever the case may be. I think if you're, if you've got the discipline to say like what I'm doing is working. Right. And, and, and it's a fine line because you've got to keep up technologically. Like you don't want to, be three four years down the road and have outdated equipment but at the same time like that that money is the fuel to run the business so it's it is it's a fine line but i think with some discipline like there is there's a little bit of margin there but it's a it's a just it's i'll just speak from experience it is not it's not an easy way to live like it is not as glamorous as it seems when you first get into it how about that yeah i definitely can understand that and you know it uh you, you talked about discipline and, and some guys at the, the top of this segment that we discussed that's racing for a living. There's no better example of that discipline than Nick Hastings. Nick uh, just, you know, he's not flashy. He's got his little Pontiac T1000. He's got it nasty. He drives the wheels off of it. He's got a nice, you know, a diesel pusher and a stacker, but it's not gold rush and uh you know american eagle and that type of stuff it's stuff that will get him to and from the racetrack just to serve its purpose not to to put on a show and you know i would imagine although there are people that won more dollars than he did last year i doubt there's anybody that quote unquote profited at a higher level than nick did with the um i guess modesty in his racing setup yeah no i i agree with that i think that if you wanted to my answer i guess to the original question like is there anyone making money out there uh, i guess if you name names or just say like this is kind of the model that seems to make the most sense to me it is the nick hastings slash scotty richardson model like what scotty has done over the last couple of years similar uh, a relatively um, low-cost car, um, and and keep in mind, like the business model looks great if you're Scotty Richardson or Nick Hastings, right? Like it's <laughs> the, the the business model to me works for the one percent, or maybe it's like the point one percent that are really talented enough to pull that off. But when you consider that either one of those guys can go into a race, particularly now when it's separated door cars to dragsters. Not to say that they couldn't win if everybody was mixed together, but I think we would agree that their odds go up slightly when they don't have to face a dragster until the final round or very late in the race, right? And what I think specific to the door car side is 
there's not a huge advantage to going faster because you can make like look at Scotty and look at Nick like six low six second door cars really really good minimal cost minimal upkeep and be extremely competitive now perhaps I'm a little bit biased to say like and it's maybe and it maybe isn't fair Jed to say you can't do that on the dragster side I think we're a little bit biased to that because I don't think there's anyone doing that on the dragster side. Like, name, if I say, Jed, who is the winningest dragster driver going dialed five something? Like, nobody even comes to mind for me. No. Not right. That's for me either. So, like, you could build a, a, a cost of effective, a, a, a cost efficient dragster, right? And it's, say it goes 5-teens, 5-20s, and you shouldn't ever really have to work on anything, kind of similar to that high 5, low 6 second door car. The issue there comes in, A, every time that you stage, well, 90% of the time that you stage, you're going to run somebody down faster than like 475, right? So they're coming on you quick, and most of us are a little bit less comfortable driving the finish line as the slower car. And you could, I can hear the pushback now saying, well, Scotty and Nick are getting chased most of the time in their door cars, right? Yes. However, two things. One, everybody raves about visibility in a dragster. Like, there's nothing impeding your visibility. That's great. Except when you got to look behind you. Because you know what's behind you? A motor. It's in the way. When you're getting chased by that amount. Like, it's not like the back half door car. You just spin around and look out the back window. You just can't pick up an opponent in a dragster until, I mean... They don't have to be at your back tire, but like it's just not as easy to spin around and see that faster car coming. And then number two, the other point that I would argue, where say in like I've got I've on the door car side, I've got both ends of the spectrum, right? I have a fast Corvette Roadster that is really good. I go 480s. And I've got a Vega that goes 640s. It's also really good. And I don't think that there is a significant advantage in terms of consistency from one to the other like if it's if it's below 50 degrees i'd rather be in my vega right beyond that like whatever that they're both equally as consistent i've never had and i've had a lot of dragsters i've never had a slow dragster let's say five something dragster that was anywhere near as good as my 470 460 450 440 dragsters like in my experience with a dragster the faster you go the better it is i just think it's a tough road to hoe to win dialed 515 in a dragster and it's counterintuitive as it may sound like i don't think it's as difficult to win in a low second low six second door car i wouldn't disagree with that and you know i've always said any anything that you do repeatedly the faster you can do it the more likely it is that you're going to do it the same time over and over and that's with a dragster or, you know walking to the mailbox or whatever but um you, you talk about Nick and Scotty and the, your door car guys that's still having to race the dragsters and, you know, they probably don't change their strategy a whole lot, but they, they probably get a little more honest, but nonetheless, they're doing that for three rounds a race, you know, that they've already, and it's at a point in the race where they've already got five, six, seven runs under them. So, you know, they're very confident in what their car is going to run and, and where they're going to be on the tree. So that, the separation of door cars and dragsters uh, has, and I'll argue this to the end of time, has given the door cars that that opportunity to get through those tough rounds where your car might move a hundredth or hundredth and a half or whatever in the early rounds, and you can wheel the door car 
but when you finally pair the dragster, these guys get honest at times. So uh, I think that has definitely helped. And the fact that they do have to run some dragsters is a little different scenario for me because they're running them so late in the races. Yeah, no, I, I just think big picture, particularly sustaining making money from racing, I think is far more about yeah I, th I think that's fair I think it's far more about how much you spend than how much you make um, yeah, fair because that, that's going to roller coaster a lot um, and that's why I, I'm drawn to that model of like how can what's the, the most inexpensive way to have a truly competitive car with a truly competitive driver and when I think of that like Scotty and Nick are the first two that come to mind. So like if I was drawing up a blueprint right now in 2021, how could I make money bracket racing? Like, I think that's probably the most obvious path. And maybe it's just because they've paved the way and showed you how to do it. But again, just because it's the obvious path, um, you're talking about arguably, like if you had listed the most talented racers in sportsman drag racing history you got two guys that are probably in the top 10 so perhaps they're making something look a bit easier than it actually is uh let's go dig a little bit deeper into the the, the kind of financial side of this because particular specific to to big dollar bracket racing and this has always been a, a part of our little niche of the sport but as the stakes grow this just becomes more and more prevalent and that's the idea of a a backer Okay, not necessarily a, like a sponsor is not really the right term here. When I think of a backer, that is um, someone who is willing to basically stake a racer in an event, meaning that they'll pay the entry fee, the buybacks for a cut of the winnings in return. Sometimes this is a car owner, sometimes it's not. Uh, and again, particularly as we get into uh, races that are to $2,500, $3,000 to enter, and then specifically, like the situation we got into last year where they're just stacked one on top of another, like there's a, a lot of racers that maybe either need or certainly would, would not turn away uh, a backer in that scenario, like, hey, I'm going to pay the entry fee and get, you know, whatever the percentage is of winning, winnings. Um, it's interesting because I feel like I need to reevaluate this a little. This is obviously something that I've given a lot of thought over the years, right? And my take on it was always, um, basically, there's there's just not enough money to go around. And as someone that has, uh, with very little exception, owned my own race cars, right? Like had pieced together whatever it was. It wasn't always the the best stuff at the track, and it certainly wasn't always the the most luxurious way to get there. But it was typically all mine, right? And I thought, well, I've got this investment. I've got all this money tied up in equipment. And let's say like a modest operation today, by the time that you get to the racetrack, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to, to think of a setup that doesn't have 50 to $100,000 by the time that you've got a way to tow to the track, a trailer and a race car, right? So let's just round numbers, like say I've got $100,000 invested in my racing operation. Every, if anything goes wrong, it's on me to fix it. Well, my thought process was always like, why on earth would I let someone invest $500 to put me in this race and give away half of what I want? That doesn't make any sense, right? Unless you just don't have the $500. In which case, I would just say like, it's probably time to reevaluate, right? Um, but now as things 
as things progress, like it gets bigger, particularly in a situation like we were in last year. I mean, what Gary Williams was on here, what did he say? We had him on in September, maybe. And he said, you know, every race that I'm going to for the rest of the year, the entry fees alone, entry fees and buybacks, I'm going to spend like 60 something thousand dollars. Mm. Um, that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. Like I could see like, okay, if I got somebody that's willing to pay all of that for 30, 40% of what I win, like I always said there wasn't enough money to go around. Perhaps if races are paying 100, 200, 500,000, $1 million to win, maybe there is enough money to go around. Yeah. I, I can understand why somebody would say there's not enough money to go around, but it hasn't been proven to me if there's not enough because it's coming from somewhere. There, there seems to be enough money or enough credit to go around or something because, you know, your your main players are still out there doing it at a high level at the at the large entry and large buyback, large expense races. So um, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, if, if you just took the top 25 that we listed, Luke, it, it'd be hard for me to believe more than half of those are out there on their own dime. I, I could be totally wrong, but um, it just seems like the the big time players in this sport have someone that has banked off of them and just continues to roll the dice over and over and over. And I I think those guys, a, a lot of those guys or a lot of the hitters out there don't have that expense, that burden on them as they're navigating through the race. You may be right. In fact, you probably are right. I just, I still struggle to wrap my mind around it just from a, a, a business standpoint. I mean, let's just say, forget the outlier years where you don't hit anything or the outlier years where you win two huge races, right? If you just averaged everything out over five years, let's again, just keep the numbers simple. Let's say that, let's say that on average, you're winning a hundred grand and you're spending 60, right? Or let's just say entry fees alone, right? Entry fees and buybacks. Let's say you're spending 40 and win in a hundred. Like that's a, that's a pretty good margin. Well, if your backer is putting up all of the 40 and they're getting half, then you've provided a $10,000 benefit to them, right? So that's, uh, that's what 25% return on their money. That's good, right? Most investors would take that. Um, And then on your end, you've got uh, on the, on the driver end, you've got the expenses of, I assume, getting to the racetrack, keeping up your equipment. but you got a, a $50,000 straight profit that you would think would keep up with most equipment. Maybe, maybe everybody does win. My argument had always been like, if I'm going to turn a profit consistently, why wouldn't I just keep all the profit? Like I, and, and if you, and if you can't justify that in your mind, then are you really providing value to that backer? Right? So like it's kind of a catch 22. If you can win enough to provide value for a backer, then it doesn't make any financial sense to have a backer. Like just count on winning enough. And if you can't, then you can't provide any value to a backer. Like I maybe it's maybe that's a very um um prehistoric ancient, you know, outdated way of looking at it, but that's always been my way of looking at it. Like it, I'm and and if you and and at that point, like if I can't afford to go to the race, like I just won't go to that race. There's no rule that says I got to be there, right? I would rather win a two grander than lose everything I got at a twenty grander, right? 
Yeah, it makes total sense, Luke, but I think it's, sometimes it's really based on how good your memory is, and some of these guys remember those lean years where, you know, they might even got themselves in some financial strain uh, trying to, to keep up with these races, so um, maybe that leads them down the path of letting the backer just handle it all, and quite frankly, you know the the real big time players and big time hitters, they're they're probably more along that thirty percent, forty percent deal uh, that that you talked about instead of the fifty percent deal because the stakes are so high. I think the backers are probably getting a little better stake in the game for a lot of these guys to put up that kind of money because it, it's just it's all a big gamble, as you know. I mean, I don't. I don't know that when it's all said and done, if you count it right, you'll ever say, yeah, they made me money outside of guaranteed million dollar races where people win three, four hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, those guys are making some money. But overall, in the long run, I'm not sure they do if, if they count it right. No, and that's fair, too, because you do have a very valid point that the more experience the more successful racers obviously can command a, a better rate in that scenario you know a, a better split um but that was that was always and it may have been flawed it was definitely flawed for this event like i think we've talked about my um lack of success at the at the og million like i went every year for 20 years and uh, yeah it's it was it's never been good to me right but my outlook on that race was like one day i'm going to win this race and when i win this race it's going to change my life and i'm i don't care if i have to this is a dumb way to look at it admittedly i don't care if i got to borrow two thousand dollars like i'm putting myself in that race every single year i just never would let anybody put me in because i felt like inevitably that'd be the year that i would hit right yeah and and again if you look over history like i am definitely in the red at the original million like it has not been good to me but that was always the thought process that i went into it with with one exception um i had a, a gentleman years ago and i'll i'll keep him anonymous but i think you know who this is jed um called me up is when i was living in alabama and said hey uh i didn't i barely knew this gentleman at all now i would count him as one of my dearest friends and uh he says hey i, I you going to that million dollar race yes sir go every year uh, I want to put you in it, and I and I'm just going through my spiel. Like I appreciate that man. I, I appreciate the uh, the faith in me, but that's one race. Like I've just I put myself in every year. I feel like I'm going to win it someday, and I, I want I want all what I win. Oh, that's that's understandable, man. I just uh, I was really excited to see that Vega there. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. I'm. This was back before directors and door cars got separated. I've won a fair amount locally in my Vega, but it was basically a foot brake car. And I said, no, man, I'm, I'm taking my dragster to the million-dollar race. Oh, well, you take your Vega, too. I can't afford to take my Vega. Like, I take one car. I, had, I have a much better chance of winning my dragster. Oh, well, I was wanting to put that Vega in. Listen, man, <laughs> I, I, I don't want you to waste your money. Like, I, if I'm going to win that race, it's going to be my dragster. Oh, I want to put that Vega in. No, that, that's, a, that's really not a good idea. Not, and hung up the phone calls me back a couple days later he's like I'll put that vague in I'll pay for everything um, if you win anything I get it was 30 or 40 percent like it was a deal I couldn't pass up the car was going to sit at home and I it was going to cost me nothing to take it because I was already going and I got 60 percent of what I win I'm like okay I and I argued with him I'm like man this is a dumb investment right but I will do it if you're just dead set on doing this 
And that is the only time, Jed, that I have ever made the split in the million. Was in my Vega that year that I told him to put my Vega in the million was the dumbest investment ever. I got down to seven cars and won like 40 grand. <laughs> and I got 60% of it. And, I, and part of me wants to be mad about that, but I can't be mad. Like I got 60% of 40 grand that I wouldn't have won. So maybe my, maybe my thinking on this is very flawed. That particular backer probably took his and went and bought him another gold ring or a gold chain. (laughs) (laughs) He he was blinging out. (laughs) Popping wheelies and blinging out. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) All right, Luke. So so racers might or might not make money. Backers might or might not make money. But there's another side to making money in racing. That's racetracks. There's several other sides to making money at racing. I mean, I, I don't know how far you want to take the scope on this. Racetracks, promoters, the surrounding industry. I mean, there is, this is a multi-million dollar industry, right? And so someone's benefiting, right? Is I think, by and large, like the average racer is spending more money than they're bringing in, right? So that money's going somewhere. Um, let's, let's focus on racetracks first because it's interesting. I feel like the business model from the time that we came up, Jed, for, for strictly from a track owner, uh, race director, like track manager standpoint, I feel like the business model has changed pretty significantly because at least where I grew up, when I grew up, the the regular weekly bracket program was maybe not the biggest source of revenue for my home track, but it was a very dependable source of revenue for my home track. I think with few exceptions that's not necessarily the case today would you yeah i would agree with that for sure Uh, i mean i know i know several track owners in my area and they i don't know one that's just doing the racetrack they all all have another business that occupies their time most of the time and success in that other business is what led them to believe you know if i've done it here when I'll get me one of these racetracks and I'll, I'll do it there too. And I think by and large, uh, that's one of the most challenging business models out there. And, and several of them have figured that out now, you know, they, they do stick with it, but I don't think it produces the kind of profit that they're accustomed to with their other businesses. Well, I would agree with that. The, the, the point that I'm making is more along the lines of, I think there can be money to be made at a racetrack, but I don't think it's the Saturday night bracket program by and large, right? It's your test and two night. It's the, it's the opportunities you get to bring people in that don't want anything in return. You know, that, that are... <laughs> Let, let's sum it up, Luke. It's, you make money at events that you feel like you need to police there. Well, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> so that's <laughs> when you think you need to police, that's usually going to turn out good for you. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, like the more spectators, the more um, racers that come in, but, you know, aren't necessarily racing for a purse. Well, that's all pure profit. Right. So yeah. I think as that in, in the, the change there has been progressive, because, it, again, I think uh, in a lot of places 20 years ago, the, the regular bracket program was a, you know, it. it not going to make anybody rich, but a consistent moneymaker enough to keep the gates open. And I don't think in most places it is now. Well, somewhere as that has progressed, I think most 
um, track owners and managers, rightfully so, have paid less attention to the record program because that's not where the revenue is generated. And I think that ultimately uh, this this explosion, this growth of big dollar bracket racing and the reason that it is so promoter based and not track based is just that. I feel like, uh, again, for good reason, the majority of track owners and, and or managers have lost touch a little bit with the, the bracket racing community and don't have, I don't know if trust is necessarily the right word, but really just don't have the connections to put on a race the way that Kyle Riley or Peter Biondo and Kyle Seipel or Britt Cummings and Galen Robinson, like, you know, that, that in, in, a, in large part has opened the door for these promoters to, to come in and put on big dollar bracket races because we all know them, we all trust them. Like, I was trying to think about this pre-show about the biggest events that you know happen annually that are put on by the host racetrack that don't have an outside promoter at all and all i could come up with was the world super pro challenge at mid michigan motorplex that the ledfords have done for what 30 years close to 30 years and the the firecracker nationals at byron am i missing it at boise like the nightfire nationals right that's track run um am i missing any that jumped to mind for you uh there's been several 50 granders at huntsville um, that's true. Huntsville's a good good example. They they definitely do some of their own stuff there, but for the most part, yeah, it's it's usually a, a rental. Yeah, and that, those really pale in comparison to you know, I mean the the big name promoters and and events. Like I would say that it's three to one. You know, the the successful events are run by uh, outside promoters at you know a host racetrack. And we can get into the the promoter end of this, Jed, but, and I'll probably get some pushback on this because this model has served us as racers really well, right? And and I do think the promoters really bridge a gap that that I think has been um, perpetuated by what I just discussed. Like there's the disconnect a little bit between the bracket racing community and the racetracks for good reason. Again, because the bracket racing community by and large hasn't been a huge revenue generator for the racetracks. The promoters come in as a stopgap stop to kind of connect the two. And now we've had this explosion. Well, I think in most cases, like in most of these, and you can speak to this a little bit more than I can, Jed, in most cases, these promoters are, are renting racetracks. So the tracks get a nice set fee. Like they're, they're obviously making money. They're covering their expenses. But when a big race goes well, the majority of the profit goes to the promoters. Now, when a big race doesn't go well, the, all of the risk goes to the promoters too. So I'm not saying like they're in the catbird seat, but when things go well, that is where the the bulk of revenue ends up. Yeah, definitely. And and as a part-time promoter, you know, I I don't feel like a race promoter even when I'm there putting it on. I, you know, I feel like a racer that's that just happens to be on the other side of the race. And you know, quite frankly, I I know those people. I, you know, I've raced with them. I get in the lanes with them. So I feel more obligated to deliver. And I think that's why it's been such a benefit to have racers putting on races. Not to say there's not some uh, promoters that don't get on the racetrack that haven't done an amazing job because there's a lot of those. But by and large, the the amount of racers putting on races, I I think we feel more obligated to deliver. And make sure that we give everything we said we'd given then some and you know try to find new ways to make the race fun and 
move faster and pay more and all those things. So I think that's been a huge benefit, but I can also tell you, and it, I mean, it's calculators. Everybody's calculator works, Luke. And when the crowds are big and things go well and weather don't interrupt you, uh, it's, it's profitable. It's, it's well worth doing and it puts money in the bank, which is, you know, one of the reasons that, that we do it. Nobody wants to enter into that type of business situation without the expectation of making money. But the risk will eat you up. It eats you up all year long because you put everything you got into this all year or promote it for eight, nine months, whatever. And you're you're just dependent on that little four day window of weather. And the risk it just tears you apart. I mean, it, it will it will consume you. So promoters, while they some of them have hit big bank, I mean, extremely well. Um, that risk is is something you live with day in and day out, and I don't think anyone ever really can get a gauge for it until you live it. Now, allow me to be clear. I have zero problem with the promoter making making bank when things go well <laughs> uh i just saying like that's typically where the money funnels in, in this current setup that we have and i'll just speak from experience because on a very small level and particularly in comparison to some of the events that we see today like i've been an event promoter and you have as a racer you have no idea like you cannot possibly comprehend the the stress level the anxiety for all of the reasons that you just mentioned jed like for the whether it's the financial risk it's just wanting to deliver for your customers who are also your friends who you're also going to race beside at some point um and just the flat hours and work that goes into it like promoters deserve to to be paid right like i would i would not do that for much less money than we made at the small events that we did, right? And I cannot imagine, like, the, this story to me goes back, um, you know, 15 years ago, it was a constant rumble in the pits at the, at the OG Million, like, man, George Howard makes as much money as the winner. You're damn right George Howard makes as much money as the winner. And you know why? Because in 1996, he guaranteed $125,000 to win a bracket race where no one had ever done and no one had ever guaranteed half of that so when that went well you know what he deserves to make money every freaking year and that's how i look at most of this like it is a very risky proposition to put on a big dollar bracket race and when it does go well i have zero problem with the promoters coming out on it um i just think it's interesting because if we were to look at this from a big picture standpoint, like I said, I have zero problem with that. And that's the way that this works right now. And it's not a flawed business model. But if we were to zoom out and just start over and reinvent all of it, I do think that the sport as a whole, like racers, racetracks, and perhaps, and eh, maybe not necessarily the industry, but certainly racers and racetracks would benefit more to eliminate the middleman. Like if it was just the race, the, the racetrack put on this event, the racers trusted the racetrack, we went to it, it would allow basically all of that money would either go back to the racers or go into the racetrack, which allows the racetrack to flourish, improve, uh, be around longer. Like ultimately, uh, my simple mind says like that's a better model. That's not where we're at. And I don't know that there's really a path to ever go back to that. 
Yeah, you know, Luke, it's such a it's such a grind for so many months to do one of these big dollar events, or or even you know it could be a year at times. Um, you know, and and we don't have every Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday that that we've got to do it. We don't have to go cut the grass and you know get the concession stand painted, and we don't have all those things. So bless their heart that that the tracks themselves are so probably uh, just ingrained in what it takes to keep the place going and, and keep it presentable that they just don't have the time, energy, and resources to put towards doing these. Now, with the advancements in social media and how well you can get the word out just with a decent reach in your social media account, um, I don't know that you have to do it for eight or nine months anymore. Uh, there's probably about a 60 day window where it's kind of prime where you can promote your event and maybe, maybe they're, they're racetrack owners. Some are doing that and some may think that it's a, it's a bigger endeavor they want to, than they want to get into. But I think good events travel fast right now, real fast. And I think if you got ideas to put on good events and you on a racetrack with the right planning and maybe even a little bit of help from someone that, that you know has got a decent size circle or decent size reach, I think that, yeah, some, some racetracks can hit it really good right now because uh, the racing industry is extremely strong. Now, I I guess the saying is, you know, like it, it, it takes money to make money and, and maybe, maybe that's kind of my, my answer for all of this. And, and maybe perhaps this is a flawed, uh, capitalistic mindset. Like I think whether you are the, the racer or the racetrack, I just feel like if you can have enough, uh, a strong enough financial reserve to, as a racer, foot the bill for everything through the good, through the ups and the downs, or, as the racetrack, you know, have the, the the reserve to hire the right people to do the right advertising. Like, I just, I think, if I owned a racetrack, obviously it would be rooted in in sport in bracket racing, right? Because that's what we do. Like, if I if I didn't have this background and I own a racetrack, I don't know that I would even have a bracket event. Like, it's just not it's not the revenue producing thing. Um, but I do think, like, if I wanted to make money putting on bracket races. I think we could do it, um, but again, I would feel a whole lot better about it if we were sitting on a pretty salty bank account that said, like, okay, we're going to take this chance, we're going to run this risk, and it's all going to be on us, uh, because when it does pay off, like, we're going to get all the profit. Well, call it ego, whatever you want to call it, Luke. Um, I, if, if I owned a track, regardless of my background, and it's because I've been there, I got to feel it, so I know what that feeling's like. I would still want to have some kind of major event, some kind of, you know, groundbreaking something because standing in the winter circle with the winter is about the coolest thing it can be. And it gets really cool. When I stood in the winter circle with Scotty after he got by you in the first 50 grand final at the world footbreak challenge, um, Scotty Richardson, you know, was teary eyed and, at that point, I'm like, holy cow. I mean, you know, I got to create, I got to be part of the team that created an event that, that means this much to arguably 
one of, if not the best sportsman or bracket racer to ever live. And then circle back to the million in, at Bristol in 2020. And there I am with him again in the same scenario, obviously a, a much larger scale, but just when you're part of that, that whole atmosphere and, and see a guy that's accomplished what he has get emotional over a win. And, you know, I want that. I want that feeling. I got to hand Caleb Ellison a $100,000 check for winning a foot break race last year. And um, so I want to be part of that. You know, obviously, definitely the money that's made is a wonderful thing, but those those atmospheres, something that I I am living for, and I'm going to miss them, not announcing, but you know, I will still get to enjoy what the World Footbrake Challenge provides for me. But uh, that's a that's a really cool feeling to stand in the winter circle with with people. Got to stand there with you when you won the million in Vegas, and you know, those are just those are irreplaceable. I agree, and I think for most successful um whether anyone in that position whether it's a, a promoter or or track operator like there's too much work that goes into this for it to just be about the money like i just don't think you do that yeah i don't think you take on that role unless you're really passionate about it and i certainly don't think you last in that role unless you're really passionate about it i guess the the point that i'm making and again maybe this is flawed because like, i don't consider myself a particularly successful businessman but jed if i owned okay let's just take it take it this way just for uh, simple apples to apples like if i am the um owner or the decision maker at at bristol dragway i the way that i would look at this is rather than having jed come in and put on these two awesome races a year and pay to rent the racetrack I want to hire Jed. What's that take? Like, obviously, in this case, I probably can't hire you, but I want to hire someone like that. Like, I want to, I want someone to come in here in house and put on these three events a year. Like, yeah. Why, tell me why that's flawed. It's not. It's not flawed. And and honestly, I've talked to some brass at Bristol. You know, when I'm I'm there, when we've got four or five hundred cars in the pits, or a, a fling event's got four or five hundred cars in the pits, and I've asked them before, is any part of you guys want to do this on your own? Because I mean, I know what you get at the end of the weekend, and don't get me wrong, it's <laughs> they they do okay, uh, but there's money left on the table, and by and large, their general feeling is that couldn't be recreated it you know it has to be the the promotion team that's doing it that generates that interest and and gets people to come to the track that you know not that bristol's not confident in themselves to put on a good event they just not they just don't feel like they could recreate what they're seeing it at these special events and you know i don't i don't know that they're wrong luke um it probably is a, a portion of that that's true but I do believe that, that they could do well, real well. No, I agree. And I mean, to say that they're um, wrong is not fair to you and what you guys bring to the, to the table. Like using you as an example is probably a, a poor one for a number of reasons. I just, I do think if you were to replace that mega event with something internal, yes, like initially it would be perhaps a, a pretty dramatic downturn in, in revenue, right? Like nothing is going to come in and replace that established event with those promoters that everyone knows. But if you do a good job with it 
and commit to it. Like I do think five years from now that you could have a, a you know, comparable um, event kind of taking its place that was all run in-house. Now, again, you run, all, you run into a much greater expense uh, and, and run a whole lot more risk doing it that way. So there are people much smarter than I am making these decisions. I've always just wondered, like, I guess it's the, the, the entrepreneur in me, like, why wouldn't you just do this all yourself? I look at it, it's, it's the same way, the same lens that I look at racing through. Like, if you, why not just foot the bill? If, you, if you're that confident you're going to win, just keep everything you win. So, again. Yeah, hard to argue against that. <laughs> okay, let's turn this thing on its head. This is, uh, for the listeners, let's just go ahead right now. Um, if you've got um, young, innocent ears around, uh, just go ahead. We'll see you next week, okay? I don't know exactly where this is going to go. I don't really – I'll take some credit for this idea. It may very well be the worst idea that we've had on the show. I think it will be fun. I hope it will be entertaining. Um, again, it's it's that time of year. We're, we're looking for some content. We're looking for some uh, some entertainment. Um, okay, so here's the deal, Jed. I have a list. Do you have a list, or is this is this just me peppering you? It's just <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. I feel. I... <laughs> well, it's yeah. A, it's your. It's just your list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, be that so act... careful what we say. <laughs> That actually makes me feel a lot better. So here's what we're going to do. I have a list, Jed, of, uh, I'm going to say 15-ish names. Now, these names uh, belong to a person that does one of three things. Some of these are names of sportsman drag racers. Okay, so that's one option. Yeah. Some of these names are names of United States Olympic athletes. Oh. Okay. And some of these names are adult film stars. I'm going to read off the name, and I want you to classify them for me. You just say adult film stars was That's the number. Was the third? Okay. Yes. I'm not, yes. I'm, I don't. I don't know a lot of those. But okay. A couple of notes for the listeners. Um, not that you'd probably ever be in the position to do what I've done in terms of research for this segment of the show. Um, I think it goes without saying, be very careful with the Google machine when you type in uh, like famous adult film stars. <laughs> That's obvious. What I didn't realize what I was getting into was U.S. Olympic athletes. Um, okay, so I, I bring up this website. It's got 718 pages of U.S. Olympic athletes mm. with like 10, person, 10 people on a page. There's a lot of U.S. Olympic athletes. Like, it's still a really prestigious thing, obviously, but I didn't realize there's like 8,000 U.S. Olympic athletes. Yeah, compete. yeah. I had no idea, and I, I, I would, I don't think I would have been able to get through the whole list. Okay, Jed. So, without further ado, <laughs> let's get to I, the list. <clears throat> time to rise up and do this, Luke. All right, Ryan Driller is Ryan Driller. A sportsman drag racer, a U.S. Olympic athlete. I'm so scared right now. Or an adult film star. That's what I say. I've got the easy end of this. Luke, I mean, that name, there's no way this guy does anything else but get naked in the movies. 
Okay, that, I teed one up for you. You're, you're absolutely right. He's an adult <laughs> film star. In fact, Ryan Driller, on the, the reference that I'm going to use here, in case you're keeping score at home, makemoneyadultcontent.com. Makemoneyadultcontent.com. It's a shout-out, right? Uh, has Ryan Driller as the second best male performer in adult filmmaking today. I, th- I think this is an up-to-date list. Like this seems like a criteria he is for that list. I I don't I don't know. But number two, right? So very good. All right, you you want to know? I, if you have yeah. a winning record on this, I'm we're never uh, let's yeah. let's try let's frame this now. We're never doing this again. I'm killing if, this right now. Yes. Um. <clears throat> all right, number two, Callahan Young. Oh my goodness, Callahan Young sounds like a rich kid that somebody gave a hot rod to so i'm gonna go a sportsman drag racer okay that's a good guess i follow that logic callahan young is a united states olympian in the sport of goal ball what you, is this wasn't a, i have no idea that's why i picked him what the hell you is sure goal that, ball you sure that wasn't a an adult film sorry <laughs> Well, this would be a good time for Nut Dust to be a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Callahan Young, Goalball, you did your one and one. Mm, uh, to the listeners, um, Goalball, let us know. I have no idea. All right, Jed. Number three, is this a sportsman drag racer, a U.S. Olympian, or an adult film star? Jagger Anderson. <laughs> Well, logic tells me you're giving me one of each to start out with. So I want to say Sportsman Drag Racer, but I'm not sure Jagger is not an adult film star. So I'm going to go back to number three. Do what? I'm saying you, the, the an adult film star. Adult film. Okay, that's that's a good guess. I was actually trying to lead you there. You're wrong. Jagger Anderson is. Come on, man. Adult film. He's a Sportsman Drag Racer. This is a Denver. Young kid. Salt of the earth. Innocent kid, you got him in porn movies. Come on, man. <laughs> My bad, Jagger. <laughs> Sorry, Jagger. All right, so you're one and two. Let's I go with. If he had uh, been Dagger, if he had been Dagger Anderson, it probably would have been an. <laughs> I've got a few setups in this here. So, so much trouble. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not you right now. Okay, so uh, our fourth, uh, our fourth example is this: a sportsman drag racer, Jed, U.S. Olympian, adult film star, Skyler. Drews. Oh, Skyler uh, had to have come through the um, had to come through the junior dragster ranks. Um, that's a that's somebody in a yard dart. That's a sportsman drag racer. Uh, you're you're back to even, Jed. Dinged it. All right, two and two. Yeah. Uh, Skyler is a racer. Uh, races uh, in the top ball category at Mid Michigan Motorplex. So kudos for you. Nice call there, Big Jed. Yeah. All right, so uh, this will be our fifth one. You're two and two. Is the record going to go above 500? The oh. name is Dan Narshowitz. <laughs> there's no way there's an adult film star named Narshowitz. I mean, those guys have all cool names that are all made up. So nobody's going to make up Narshowitz. So that gets it down to either a sportsman drag racer or an Olympic athlete. And a Narshowitz sounds like somebody that would be like some kind of runner or something. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going Olympic athlete. Yeah, I, what came to mind for me was shot put. 
but Jed, you are wrong. Dan Narshowitz, sportsman drag racer, Minnesota-based. Ah, yes. All right, so two and three. Monica Abbott. Is Monica Abbott a sportsman drag racer, an Olympic athlete, an adult film star? I didn't know there was going to be women. I thought this was all men, and there was nothing that said it'd be men, so shame on me. But Monica Abbott sounds like an adult film star because Monica just, you know, I've known a couple of Monicas and I'll just leave it at that, but I'm going to go adult film star. How dare you, Jed? She is a starting pitcher for our United States Olympic softball team. Oh, I must have missed their last game. <laughs> Two and four. Oh, I'm terrible at this game. <laughs> All right, Jed. Mick Blue. Is oh, my gosh. That's... That's that, that name. I don't even want to repeat it. That's an adult film star. That's a, a slam dunk. Give me that one. You got it. You got it. All right. So that puts you to three and four. Mick is, in fact, a star of the adult film industry. Tyler Vaughn is Tyler Vaughn, sportsman drag racer, U.S. Hmm. Olympic athlete, adult film star. Tyler Vaughn sounds like somebody that races um so far the racers have been from minnesota and uh, i don't even remember denver so you're going kind of out there getting away from my home base with these names i'm gonna go tyler vaughn is a sportsman drag racer from the midwest i'm impressed jed you are back to 500 tyler vaughn is a sportsman drag racer from the state of nebraska Rushed it. <laughs> Crushed it. Got Rustin Mays old dragster. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I did not. I was leery of getting anything in your geographic region for Sportsman Dragger. I wanted the list to be as, <laughs> as pure as possible, if that's, if, that's, if that's even a thing in this particular list that we're doing. So, four and four, Jed. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Um, all right. Molly Stewart. Oh, Molly Stewart. Uh, she's, a, she's an absolutely famous... Uh, U.S. Olympic athlete. Molly Stewart was a gymnast. Yeah, this might be a bad name because Molly Stewart sounds pretty common. There, It's possible that there is a Molly Stewart that is a drag racer as well as a Molly Stewart that is a gymnast that is a U.S. Olympic athlete. But I do know for a fact that there is a Molly Stewart within the adult film industry. So I'm going to ding you there. You're four and five. According again to MakeMoneyAdultContent.com, Molly is not only involved in the industry she's the 28th ranked female performing artist hey maybe we, that'll be a new list for us maybe we, we'll list those soon but molly i would bet my <laughs> i would bet molly's done some gymnastic type stuff but she probably didn't make it on the olympic team i should give you half credit because there's there's got to be some training involved <laughs> Gotta be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put you. I don't even. Let's. We'll throw Molly out. I'm. You're still four and four. Molly. That was. That was too good. Too easy. Too common a name. And and like I say, you're on the right track. Let's go. Four and four. Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey, a sportsman drag racer. U.S. Olympic athlete, adult film star. Um. Immediately, I think about the Incredible Hulk, but I think that was Bill Bixby. Um, Bill Bailey was not the Incredible Hulk. 
there's no way there's a Bill Bailey because Bill Bailey's got to wear glasses with a name like that. And there's no way he's in the adult film industry because they don't wear glasses. Um, I'm going Bill with a sportsman drag racer. Okay, this one was tricky because I was trying to go with as common a name as possible. Bill Bailey also on MakeMoneyAdultContent.com. He is the number 30 ranked male performer in the industry. Ah. I'm going to ding you on that one. We are now officially down to four and five. Oh, Bill. Did he have glasses on, Luke? Jed, I found a text list. The last thing that I was looking for in this Google search was photos. I have no idea if the man wore glasses, okay? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Is this name, Sportsman Drag Racer, a U.S. Olympic athlete, an adult film star, the name is Elva Adams? Well, Elva Adams, uh, if she was a racer, she would be a, uh, like a sportsman category racer. She would race something with street tires on it. If she was an adult film star, uh, her Elva's um, prime time in the industry would have been between 1975 and 1984. So Melva, was it Melva or Elva? Elva. Elva, with, with Elva the... has to be an Olympic athlete. <laughs> I love the process of elimination. You are back to 500, my friend. <laughs> yes. Elva is a U.S. Olympic athlete in the sport of Taekwondo. I was really selfishly hoping that you would claim that Elva was in the adult film industry so that we could get it back to her so that she could come kick your ass. <laughs> I'm not saying Elva wasn't. Maybe Elva Sr. was in the adult film industry, but <laughs> this Elva was an athlete. She was a fencer, you said? She did fencing? No, Taekwondo. That's why oh, she Taekwondo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> Nathan Lando. No, hold on. I mispronounced that. Sorry. Nathan Lado. <laughs> that was tricky. See, the way you did that, and then you got, you turned Lando into Lado, that was tricky because that makes me think that, well, you know what it makes me think. But Lado sounds like, sounds like a racer from Ohio. Uh, Nathan Lado probably won the track championship in street at his track this year so congratulations nathan he is a sportsman drag racer <laughs> i'm so glad this thing has a mute button jed okay so nathan lado <laughs> is actually an olympic rower oh yeah I'm so, so I, i'm so <laughs> down on rowers I, I don't know those names very well they're the olympic rowers anymore i Definitely used to keep up with all of them <laughs> definitely a household name within the rowing community you were five have and i even six, got a Jim. chance five and six okay you're five and six we have how one, many two three four i have five more so i, I lied i have 16 oh man if you um, get to eight and eight like that's that'd be incredible yeah for my first time at this i think it'd be great do you think it would be any easier the fifth time <laughs> no i don't, I don't think so either. <laughs> robert berkovics robert berkovics Alright. There's no way in hell Robert Berkovics is an adult film star. So Robert either races or is an athlete. Now I don't think you're gonna go back to back to back athletes. You gave me a taekwondo and a rower back to back. There's no way any chick is going to 
go to a movie and work with Robert Berkowitz, or was it Berkowitz? Uh, either way, Robert must be a sportsman drag racer. Oh, you nailed it, Chad. I feel like you've, you're more into game theory than, than I expected. I should have mixed these up a little bit better, but you are back to 6-6. Six and six. Robert <laughs> yes. Berkovics is a foot brake racer from the state of Washington. I have no idea if if Robert does well for himself on the dating scene. Is mar- I have no clue. I'm not going to speculate. Um, you you threw him under the bus there, not me. But you did get it correct. You are 6-6. Six and six. You are 500. How about Robbie Echo? <laughs> so, <laughs> Robbie Echo, well, how do you spell, which, is it Echo like the brand, like an E-C-H-O? Yes, sir. Okay, because if it was an adult film star, he'd be E-K-K-O or something like that. It would be made <laughs> up, but Echo, I don't know, because Echo, you know, there's, there's probably something to that in the adult film industry, like in some of the, the, the settings they're in. Like Robbie, he might be named Robbie Echo because of like the the sounds that. Well, you know, I don't need to. I don't need to get into that. Look, I'm going to go. Robbie Echo is a sportsman drag racer. Robbie Echo, number four on the Make Money Adult Content dot com rankings <sighs> for 2020. Robbie Echo has you down to six and seven, Big Jed. How about <clears throat> Hurricane? Patty Lyons. Hurricane Patty. <laughs> this is a trick because Hurricane Patty Lyons ought to be an adult film star, but I don't think there's many Patties out there. And if she was a Patty, I don't think she'd put Hurricane in front of her name, except for what a Hurricane does. And maybe Patty has some of those same skill sets as a Hurricane. Hmm, this one's tough, Luke. Uh, Hurricane Patty's got to be an Olympic athlete. Hurricane Patty is, or at least was, I haven't kept up with Hurricane Patty's career in recent years. Hurricane Patty was a sportsman drag racer. Oh, man. I'm terrible with those. I should have got that. Down to six and eight. I've actually got a related Hurricane Patty story that might perhaps get us in more trouble if that's possible uh, than what we've done to this point so hurricane patty bless her heart um was not a particularly successful racer in uh, ihra quick rod back uh it's probably like two decades ago like um struggled right did went to a lot of races her son um michael lyons multi-time ihra world champion right so went to a lot of the races um didn't win a lot uh, didn't win a lot of rounds, to the, to the best of my recollection, at least. <clears throat> the Cummings family, they were very familiar with friends of the podcast. They, uh, at, at this time, would go to every IHRA race on the planet. Well, they drove from their home in Hammond, Louisiana, to Epping, New Hampshire, which, for those of you that don't know, is you might as well be on the other side of the world, right? They're a long way from home. And in the first round of Quick Rod, Britt hooks Hurricane Patty. And it's one of, I've actually done a fair amount of research on this, talked to a few people. It's one of two known instances in eliminations where Hurricane Patty's wind light came on. And it was opposite Britt Cummings. Great racer, right? Yeah. Things happen. So Britt comes back to the trailer. He's obviously not particularly happy. He just drove 40 hours to a national event, 
and lost to Hurricane Patty. Might have been the first round win of her career. So he gets back to the trailer, and he's sitting in the car, despondent, just, you know, evaluating life. His crew, <clears throat> a.k.a. his brother Slate, gets back to the trailer, and instead of just, you know, giving Brit some space, letting this sink in, like, this isn't good for anyone involved. Slate looks around and just begins rampaging the pit area. Lawn chairs, fuel jugs, just throwing everything all over the place, wherever it could be. To the point that Brit gets out of the car and is like, dude, what is going on? And Slate says, man, I don't know. Looks like a damn hurricane rolled up through here. <laughs> Sounds just like something Slate would do. Oh, my goodness. Hurricane Rick, Patty. Rick couldn't have done anything but laugh. No. I actually, I, I thought, there's no way he's going to let me tell that story on the podcast. And Britt's response in text was, oh, yeah, tell them all. Hell, I've lost a way worse. <laughs> there you go. Jed, you're six and eight. The best case scenario is you get back to 500. Oh, man. You have two left. Bad. River, hmm, Radamu, I'll, I'll even give you the spelling. Is it Radamu or Radamus? R-A-D-A-M-U-S. Is River, a sportsman drag racer, U.S. Olympic athlete, adult film star? Okay, so River would have definitely, you know, if you put a just a normal, any kind of normal last name with that, would River's going to be an adult film star because... You know, they just got names like that. Uh, but that's not Radimus. Uh, nobody's working with River Radimus. Uh, she she couldn't get, there's no way she could get the job. So she's either, you know what? I don't even know if River's a woman, but I'm going to assume so. Anyway, she's either a sports and drag racer or an Olympic athlete. River come from money. Uh, nobody, nobody in my neighborhood names their kid River Luke because uh, that's, you know, kind of uppity, a little bit uppity name. River came from money. She's had lots of training, lots of people in her corner over the years, and definitely somebody that had the, the financial backing to train for the Olympics. So River's going to be an Olympic athlete. Oh, you got a shot, Jed. You're up to seven and eight. River Radu, <laughs> a male Olympic athlete. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and multi-talented at that in ski and snowboard. Oh, if they name their son River, they definitely rich. Uh, yeah, that dad owned a <laughs> big old factory of some kind. <laughs> All right, this is it. If you go 500 here, because I mean, in reality, come on, baby, you should go. You should bat 333, right? Like. The odds are you get one out of three because there's you'd have no idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tori Black is Miss Tori, a sportsman drag racer, U.S. Olympic athlete, adult film star. Okay, Luke. So Tori Black is a name that could fit any of these categories. Um, you know, the Tories that I've seen in my time, you know, they they. There's a few of them that might have uh, been a little um, promiscuous. So I'm going, and, and just simply because I think that, that you would have to end this with adult film star. I don't, I don't think uh, the way your makeup, the way you're wired, I think you would have to end this with adult film star. So I'm going to say Tori Black is number 11 
on the uh, naked.com whatever thing you said uh, adult film star list adult film star I'm not playing poker with Jed. I don't know how. I don't know that I even appreciate the way that you put that together. But not only is Tori Black an adult film star, you said she was 11th? She's 9th. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's one of those, like, if you go from the, the AP poll to the coaches poll, she might as well have been 11th, right? Well, when my subscription ran out, she was 11th. But I guess, <laughs> I, guess, she's, I guess she's moved up. <laughs> Oh, I cr- I, no pun intended, but I crushed that. <laughs> Jed, I, I got to give you props, man. I never thought you would get half of those right. Like, it's literally a one in three shot. You went eight and eight. That's impressive. I think you can hang it on the mantle because the odds of us ever doing this again are slim to none. You said hang it on the mantle. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, Jed, we'll never do this again, so soak in your victory and enjoy this. This, um, Oh, my goodness. I hope our listeners appreciate this. This is good. That was such a blast. Luke, uh, that was a great time, and I I will be perfectly honest with you. I guessed at every one of them, but the the driller guy, I mean, that had to be. That that wasn't a guess. I knew that one had to be, but. Uh, I, I was that was a complete guess at all of them. I'm very proud of eight and eight, and I uh, I can't wait to to do this again if you know if we still get to even do a show after this. Awesome time, man. Good stuff. Great list uh, to the listeners that <laughs> that have sat through this. Uh, we apologize. I truly have run out of things to to discuss on the show and and fun things to do, but uh, we'll we'll try to come up with some more soon because we've got another show coming up, but. You know, reach out to us and tell us what you loved about this show. And I'm sure uh, you'll get carpal tunnel from typing all the wonderful things that you enjoyed from this show. But reach out to us and tell us. You can tell us right there through messages or right on the front page of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast uh, Facebook page. Or you can um, just, again, you can do that on the page or message Mark and he'll get the message to us. But tell us what we did right. Uh, tell us what we did wrong. Um, you know, tell us what you loved and what you hated. We, we can't wait to hear from you. Uh, Luke, uh, this may be the most epic shouts ever if, you, if you've got a list prepared. Before we get there, and I don't, I don't know that I can follow that last segment with much of anything. Um, I will say this, Jed. We, we request each episode, like, give us some feedback. How are we doing? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Um, we really need that. We didn't, I think this is kind of embarrassing to say because I think this has been going on for months. We had some audio issues with the show that we didn't realize we had. Hopefully this show's better. We, we changed some things in our settings. Uh, apparently some audio from, from each of us, uh, more, more often than not me, I think, would just cut out occasionally. Like when we talked over each other, you wouldn't get both audios. We think we have that resolved. Um, in the future, if you hear things like that, and you're like, you know, I listen to some other podcasts, and we don't have, the, they don't have this problem. Let us know. We'd like to fix that, um, or or anything like that. And, and maybe it falls on us too. Perhaps we should listen to our show occasionally. It, it just seems so monotonous because you know we're here, like we're talking about it now. Why would we re-listen to our conversation? <laughs> Help well, us I'm, out. I'm going back and listening to this. Shouts to your. Um, shouts to your abilities, Jed. Like I am, I'm a little bit skitzed out 
about the way that you just kind of pegged me throughout this and your mind reading abilities. This is uh, this is next level stuff. I'm, perhaps okay. we just know each other too well. Um, but yeah, the appreciate that. Shouts uh, <laughs> on a on a more serious note. Um, we started the show off on a, on a dreadful note, so uh, of course, um, shouts to, to Daniel, Chaps, Stone, his family, and the the surrounding community down there at Bradenton. Where I was going to go with this, uh, again, on a, on a more serious note, I'm sure, uh, I know, Jed, you have, uh, and you've probably stayed in touch with him uh, more closely than most, um, <clears throat> and most of our listeners have probably seen the, the recent developments uh, in Kyle Seipel's health. Uh, shouts to Kyle, just if if you're listening to this or if um, if your friends your family are listening to this I've, i think it goes without saying we're all in your corner man and uh, and hoping that this is uh, uh, another blip another low point on the radar and that uh, and that good days are, are ahead but uh, it doesn't it doesn't sound like things are going particularly well right now so we're thinking of you man well said back to the fun stuff jed shouts to jagger anderson who you should get a message from Shouts to Elva Adams. I'm so glad that we won't have to forward her anything that you said. The last thing you need is a hit out from Taekwondo Olympian. Shouts to Goalball. Whatever the hell Goalball is. (laughs) Shouts to Ryan Driller. Ryan Driller. How did I start with that one? (laughs) Shouts to MakeMoneyAdultContent.com. I would say go check it out. Don't go check it out. Um, be very, very careful with the Google machine. <laughs> and shouts to Hurricane Patty. Most of all, shouts to Hurricane Patty. Man, if that was like, <clears throat> if Hurricane Patty and Brit's race was recent and, and Slate could have dialed up, hit me like a hurricane by Luke Combs, oh my gosh, how epic would that have been? <laughs> I might play that, play that for him next time I see him, by the way. And uh, shouts to the number one podcast producer on uh, podcastproducers.net. Happy birthday to producer Mark. Um, What a great way to celebrate your birthday with one of the best podcasts we've ever done. Uh, Mark, thank you for all you do for us and the listeners. You are, are selfless and you give of your time and your energy and we appreciate you. Uh, I do want to make note that I saw on Facebook today that you were 11 pound, two ounce, 24 inch long baby. And Wait, uh, what? Again, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I thought that it was pictures from his first birthday, and it was like right after he was born. So um, he ain't no puppy. Uh, producer Mark is a is a full grown dog, and uh, we hope you have have had a wonderful day bud and hope you uh, can wrap this birthday up in style tonight we appreciate mark absolutely echo everything that you said shouts to mark's mother <laughs> yeah yeah her, her small baby was 10 pounds 10 ounces look her little one and jed i can't let you off the hook that, that easily we got a serenade oh yeah <clears throat> excuse me let's uh, let's do this <clears throat> happy birthday to you Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, producer Mark. Happy birthday to you. Number 35. Happy birthday, producer. That was that was awesome. Thank you very much. So uh, that wraps us up. Yeah, you're welcome, my friend. That wraps us up, guys. Uh, what a what a wonderful show. Wrapping up in style and 
we appreciate you listening. Thank you to the, the sponsors that have helped bring the show to you. Uh, definitely appreciate all they do for us. Appreciate PJ North, Luke, Mark, everybody. We're so happy that uh, this team is still together. And what show is this? It's 213? Wow. Oh, my God. What a bunch of shows. And uh, we, we probably just did one of the most epic ever. So hope you enjoyed it. We thank you for listening. If you're on the Twitter, you can at Luke or myself. He is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Love to hear from you there or the Facebook page. Reach out. Talk to us, as Luke said. Let us know what's going on with you and what you liked and maybe didn't like. And uh, we'll be sure to make some show improvements from there. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon about more Sportsman Drag Racing. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, and you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services, quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs>